Well, good morning again. How's everyone doing? If you have your Bibles, if you could take them out and turn into 1 Timothy chapter 6. And also, if you could take out your message outline to follow along this morning, I greatly appreciate that. I, I read a story of a father who was passing by his son's room. And as he was passing by his son's room, he was just astonished at what he saw. Because the, everything in the room was picked up. Everything in the room was in place. Everything was neat. Everything was clean. The bed was made. And so the father goes in the room to try to figure out what's going on in here. And as he goes in the room, he sees on the pillow there's a note that says, Dad. And seeing that, he was very concerned uh, for that. So he picks up the note. He starts unfolding it. And there was a letter inside there. And the letter read this. It says, Dear Dad, it's with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing you. I had to elope with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with Mom and you. I've been finding real passion with Stacy. She is so nice. But I knew you would not approve of her because of all of her piercings, tattoos, and tight motorcycle clothes, and the fact that she is much older than I am. And it's not only passion, Dad, she's pregnant. And Stacy said we'll be very happy. She owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood for the whole year. Uh, so we, we share a dream of having many, many more children together. And Stacy has opened my eyes to the fact that marijuana really doesn't hurt anyone. So we were growing it for ourselves and treating it with other people for cocaine and other essentials. In the meantime, we pray that science will find a cure for her. Whatever she has, we haven't identified it yet. But don't worry about me, Dad. I'm 15 now, and I know how to take care of myself. And someday, I'm sure I'll be back so you can get to know your grandchildren. Love your son, Cody. And then out, then out at the bottom of the letter, he writes, P.S. Dad, none of the above is true. I'm over at Tommy's house. He says, he said, I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than the report card that is in my center dresser drawer. And he goes, I love you. Call me when it's safe to come home. <laughs> you know, what's funny as that is, one of the things that we need to be careful about that, that isn't the way we approach our Heavenly Father, right? That we come to him and, and we say, it's easy for us to look across the landscape of this world and look around and say, justify what we do in our lives and say, you know, God, what I'm doing is not as bad as him or her or bad as this situation. And we look at our own lives, we start judging other things, right? And sometimes we do that, and it's kind of funny. But one of the reasons we're going through this series this morning, acceptable sins in our life, because we need to be conscientious of these sins that so easily creep into our lives and they wreak havoc in our lives, don't they? And the one we're going to look at today is the sin of consumerism. All of us in this room are consumers to one extent of the, or the other, of food. We need clothes, we need shelter, and so forth and so on. When you think about consumer, consumerism, it's the basic needs, but it goes into wants and it goes into desires, doesn't it? And it really sees those things as an end unto themselves. And consumerism comes with this lie that if we have this car, that if I have this job, or if I make this amount of money, or I live this house, or I have these things, or I'm able to go to these places, then we'll be happy, then I'm content, then I've arrived, then I've made it right, and we'll be satisfied. That's the lie, the lie that consumerism gives to us, that feeds us. It's a false religion that never satisfies. And if we're honest with ourselves, it only intensifies with this, right? All of us in this room, we live in America. We live in this consumeristic culture in which we live in. And each day, we're bombarded with ads getting us to buy more stuff, right? And it's never-ending. And matter of fact, the, the data shows that it's never-ending, that we give into it all the time, and don't we? We see an ad, something new and better. Oh, i got to have that. That's got to be better, whatever it is. Listen to this. The United States right now, 
because we cannot fit enough stuff in our houses, it has an upward of 50,000 storage units. Storage is the fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate industry. Right now, one in three people cannot fit their car in their garage because it is filled with stuff. Does that ring any bells for anyone? Or the average 10-year-old in America has owns 238 toys. 3% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of all the toys. That doesn't seem right, does it? The average American home has over 300,000 items in it. And I started thinking about that. They must be including Legos and puzzle pieces and all that, 300,000 items. But that's not a good thing. Because over the course of our lifetime, we will spend no less than 3,680 hours or 153 days searching for misplaced stuff. Our watches, our glasses, rings, or keys, or whatever it may be. To top it all off, this next year we will spend no less than $1.2 trillion on non-essential goods. Things we don't really need, right? To say that we live in a consumeristic culture is an understatement. But the reality is it doesn't just affect us. It, it's really been affecting people through all time. Everyone's had this problem, not just us. We may have it in a greater, greater, greater process here, but it affects everyone. In fact, Paul and Timothy, in the book of Timothy, Timothy is living in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus at that time was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and they're having to deal with consumerism that's going on way back then, almost 2,000 years ago, that these false teachers would think that they had this godliness, and out of their godliness, they thought it was a means of a financial gain somehow out of this godliness they're going to have. And Paul is having to deal with this through Timothy. And in these people living in this consumeristic culture in Ephesus, in Ephesus there, are breeding ground for consumerism because they had this port, they had wealth, they had trading, and they had the Temple of Artemis, which was a huge source of income for the religious leaders there. So consumerism and greed was infiltrating all through that city, through and through. So Paul calls out these false teachers in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 through 5, and he says, this form of godliness that you have doesn't coincide with that financial gain that you're trying to get. And he's saying, you're taking the good teaching of Jesus now, and you're corrupting it. Well, how are they corrupting Jesus? Uh, what did Jesus say about godliness and financial gain? It's our memory verse for this week. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. See, it all connects together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The false teachers failed to understand that they could not serve both God and money. And yet, day in and day out, we wrestle with that too, don't we? We wrestle with that. Because in reality, not only do we have those smartphones, but we have the bills to go with it, right? Not only do we have those cars and trucks and, and those SUVs, but we have the car payments. Not only do we have those houses, but we have those mortgages. And we have those bills come in week in and week out, month in and month out, and sometimes now we say a single income can't pay for it, so we have to go to dual incomes, and sometimes we have to go to triple incomes, get other people to watch our children, trying to pay for all this stuff. We honestly have to answer the question at the end of the day, who am I serving? Am I serving God or am I serving money? Have I given myself over to Christ or have I given myself over to consumerism? And that's what Paul is going to be addressing today as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. So hopefully you have your Bibles there. In this passage, you're going to see the truths that, two truths that Paul wants us to understand, to grab hold of our hearts. Two truths concerning consumerism, if you have your outline. Let me give you the first one. Contentment brings great gain is what he says. Contentment brings great gain. Let's read verses 6, 7, and 8. 
He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, if the Bible says there is great gain in something, our antenna should go up. That should get our attention, right? So what Paul is saying is, when we have godliness and contentment together, as you couple those two together, you will find great gain. So the first question we have to ask, what is godliness and what is contentment, right? Yes? Right? That's what we got to ask. So what is godliness? The apostle Paul says godliness is recognizing God and responding to him. That's what godliness is. That's what a godly person is. He's recognizing who God is, and not only recognize who God is, but responding to him by walking in obedience to him. And so the apostle, says, the apostle Paul says, if you're godly and content, contentment means you have this satisfaction that goes beyond circumstances. It's this internal satisfaction that you have. In fact, in contentment was a virtue of the Greeks. They saw this as contentment, as self-sufficiency in themselves, what they saw as. We as believers in Jesus, Jesus Christ, we don't see it as self-sufficiency. We see it as Christ-sufficiency, right? To be sufficient in Christ. So when it comes to contentment, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we see that Christ is sufficient, that we have our satisfaction fully in him. Amen? We find that in him. So Paul was saying, for the believer in Jesus Christ, if we want to have great gain, you re need to recognize who God is in a responsive way. That's godliness. And also be satisfied in who Christ is. That's contentment is what he's saying. Through that, we'll experience great gain. We all want great gain. In fact, through that, he says, we will gain a peace that passes all understanding. And through that, it allows us to go through all of our difficulties that we can go through, difficult circumstances. And through that, Paul was able to write Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let me share with you what he says there. For he says, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Whether we find contentment, when we find contentment, it's in Christ and Christ alone, right? Paul is saying that is great gain, to find that. That's what he was talking about. He says, I have found this contentment so much in the Lord that he goes, no matter what I go through in this life, I find satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And that's very powerful coming from the Apostle Paul. Because if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's life, he was flogged, he was put in prison, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned and left for dead, he was persecuted. He went through the storms of life day in and day out, much worse than us many times. And yet he had this contentment that was found in Jesus, because he knew who Jesus was, that he was his all-sufficient Savior. And what he's saying, that is great gain. I have great gain because I have Christ. That's all I need. No matter what else is going on in my life, I have Jesus. Now, the reality is that contentment is not something that we just have. Contentment is something we have to learn. Contentment is something we have to grow in. If we're honest with ourselves, nobody's just content. None of us are just content. Uh, we're not born being content. If any of you have children, you know your children, babies are not always content if they're hungry or if they're tired or if they're sleepy or if they need their diapers changed. And babies grow up in contentment. That doesn't always come with that, right? I mean, you take your little ones to Chuck E. Cheese or you take your older ones to Great America or some other event. At the end of the day, your children usually don't come up to you and say, Mom and Dad, I'm so thankful that you brought us to this place. We had such a good time. I'm so content 
I'm ready to go home. You ever have them say that to you? No, it's usually the opposite. They usually look at you and say, hey, I didn't get to play that game. Or I didn't go out, get to go on that ride. And they start arguing with you, and nobody wants to go home. And finally, you look at yourself, why did we even come here? We did all this stuff, and they just want more and more and more. And I wonder if God looks at us, and he thinks the same way about us. Where he looks it up that we're sucked up in this consumerism, this consumeristic society in which we live in. And I wonder if sometimes God looks at us as I, I've got these people down there in America. We live in this culture that are just surrounded by all kinds of commercial goods, all these kind of material goods, and it's still not enough for them. They're still not content. They're still not enough. When are they going to learn that their treasures are not on this earth, that their treasures are found in me? Their treasures are found in my life. That's where they're going to find the riches of my life. It's spiritual. It's not physical. Contentment in Christ is great gain is what he's saying. It's not in circumstantial. It rises above in any all circumstances what he says. So one of the things we have to ask ourselves, so how are we going to foster this contentment in our lives? Because the world, our culture is going to draw us in the opposite direction, right? Let me give you a couple things if you want to foster contentment. I pray you all do want to have contentment. We'll be content in our lives. One of the things we need to remember that contentment doesn't come from our creation, but it comes from our creator. So we have to stop looking horizontally, and we have to start looking vertically, right? C.S. Lewis says this, If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were not made for this world. You ever think about that? We're not made for this world. The truth is that we will never find anything in this greater world that will make us completely happy. None of us will. The, the sooner that you and I understand that, the more freedom it brings into our life when we understand that and grasp hold that truth. Yeah, because we can stop try, trying so hard, striving, stop trying so hard, and, and stop being so disappointed in the things of this world. When we're not, things in this world are not going exactly the way we want them. We're supposed to have a longing and hope for something better. Eyes that look beyond this world is what God wants for us. Because everything in this world is not supposed to be. This is not heaven. This world is not supposed to be heaven. It's not supposed to make us completely happy and full of joy. That's what heaven's all about. The world's not like that. And it's supposed to give us a longing for something better, eyes for something better. So as you think about your own life, are you getting sucked up in consumerism? Or do you have eyes that look beyond this life to a life ahead with Jesus, the life that God has promised us with him in heaven? That's where we find contentment. It's in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone is where we find it. Not in the things of this world, but in Jesus. The other thing we need to understand, we want to foster contentment. We need to embrace God's promises in his word. We need to understand what they are. When you buy an insurance policy, one of the things you do is you find out what's covered. So you read the policy to find out what's covered. And once you find out you're covered, you no longer worry, right? You go on and live your life because you know you're covered. The same way with God's word. God's word is an insurance policy to us, and so it tells us that we're covered. Well, we have to read it to know that we're covered. And, and so what we have to understand is, in this book, the Bible, there's over 6,000 promises that God has given to us. But if you don't know God's word, you don't know how to uh, embrace the promises of God. So what happens in our life when we don't know God's word, what we kind of do when we don't know his word, we go to other places to try to draw from them, to get covered by them through our worries, through our fears, through our difficulties, through our problems. We need to know and understand God through his word. And we need to embrace his word is what we need to do. Embrace what, what it says in here, those promises that God has given to us. 
That's exactly what Paul did. That's why the apostle Paul could say, I could be content in any and all circumstances because he knew God and he knew God's word. And then from there, he knew God's promises. And he knew that God was provider of all perfect gifts. And he knew that God's grace was sufficient. And he knew that his mercies were new in each and every morning. From Psalm 46, he knew that God was his refuge, that God was his rock. And he knew that when he faced trials and calamities and difficulties and insults and persecution, he knew that in his weakness that God would be strong. And he knew that in spite of all the world's calamities, that God would work all things together for good for those who love him, that have been called according to his purpose. He knew all those things. And he knew one of the things the Apostle Paul knew, that God's love for him would never be shaken. It never would be shaken. It never would change it for him. And that's why he could write Romans chapter 8, verse 37 through 39, when he's talking about nothing can separate us from God's, God's love. Let me read verses 37 through 38 and 39. The Apostle Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you embrace Christ, is what Paul is saying, you recognize that he's your all-sufficient Savior. It takes us through the circumstances and storms of life. And there we can find satisfaction. There we can be content. He says we have contentment in him, not through consumerism, not through the things of this world is what he's saying. So through contentment, he says, you and I can find great gain. But on the other side of this, he's going to give us a warning now. That's the second truth concerning consumerism. Number two, he says, the love of money brings great loss. The love of money brings great loss. Let's read verse 9 and 10. He says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, some things we should clear up to make sure we understand what, what he's saying. He's not saying if you're rich, you're falling into temptation. He's not saying that. What he's saying, if you have this insatiable desire to be rich, if that's your focus, if that's what you want, then you fall into temptation. If you're seeking rich as an end unto themselves, he says that that's where temptation comes. The second thing he says, he does not say the love of money is the root of all evil. He doesn't say that. He said it's a root of all kinds of evil. It's just one root of all kinds of evil. So if, if you and I are ourselves who are hungry for money and things and for riches, and that is our purpose, that is our goal, and trying to get fulfillment, fulfillment out of that, he says it's a root of many different kinds of evil that will come. When our focus is on money, and there's people like that. I used to work with people like that years and years ago. Their focus is on money. Make it any way they can. Have it in any way they can. Because they wanted to buy stuff. The more money they could have, the more they wanted. The more money they had, the more they wanted to hold on to it. And it leads us down a path. And verse 9 talks about that path. It gives us that slippery slope that it leads us down to. He says there's a desire to be rich, and from there, a person goes into temptation. From temptation, we fall into a trap. And from that trap to foolish and harmful desires. And he says that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That word plunge was a boating term that they would be very well aware of what he was saying here. That they would think about a boat out in the sea that was going under the sea, that people are drowning, uh, the boat is sinking, and plunging its victim into an ocean of ruin and destruction. That's the term he was using. 
That's the term they would understand. And they would know exactly what he's talking about there. And that's what Paul is, in fact, saying. If you're going to seek the riches of this world, and so many people do, even Christians do sometimes, this is what's going to happen in your life. He says, those riches, that money, those things are going to overtake you. And he says, they're going to sink you to ruin and destruction. Matter of fact, he says, some of the people did that in the church in verse 10. Let's look at verse 10 again. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, had wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So some of the church had taken what the world had to offer and embraced it so much that they rejected what Christ had to offer, and they wandered away from the faith, and they wandered away from the truth. And there are people in the church who do that sometimes. And sometimes the world is maybe leading some of us out there to do that. So the question we have to ask ourselves, how do we keep the love of money in check in this consumeristic culture in which we live in? One of the things that we always have to do is we have to count the cost. We have to count the cost of that pursuit that we're pursuing. We have to count the cost of that purchase, of what we purchase. Is that purchase the thing that I bought is going to take me away from serving God? It's going to take me away from attending church on Sunday. That purchase that I bought, is it going to cause me that I now can't give my full tithe to God? Or I can't give to those in need? We have to count the cost. What is the cost of that job promotion that I may be taking? What is the cost of working those extra hours for money? What is the cost for dual income? What is the cost to my family? What is the cost to my friends? What is the cost to my testimony? What is the cost, here's the big one, with my walk with God? What is that going to cost? We always have to count the cost because there's always a cost. If we're going to do something apart from God, there's always a cost. Is it going to take us away from the most important? The most important is walking with God, right? The eternal things, people, God. That's what's most important. And many times we're going after those things that aren't as important. The other thing we need to do to keep money in check, we need to make sure we're living in God's economy and not our own economy. If I had to ask you how much money should we should should we give God, what would you say? I don't want anybody to say any answers. Would you say 5%? Would you say 10%? Would you say, wow, uh, I'm very generous, 15 or 20%. What would you say? You say, how much money should we give to God? Do you know the percentage is pretty easy to figure out for all of us? The percentage is the same for all of us? If you want to know how much money that we should give to God, listen to me, because this is the correct answer. This is the biblical answer. It's everything. It's everything. We're to give everything to God. You know, we bought in the lie that we are owners of stuff. And God has not called us to be owners of our things. We're not owners. God has called you and I to be stewards of our things. We're only stewards. Everything that we have, God owns. It all belongs to God. That's the way we have to think of it. We are not the owner. God is the owner. We are the stewards. Uh, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And he repeats that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26. How do we know that we're not the owner? How do you know that you're not the owner of your stuff? Because when you die, you don't take it with you, do you? There was a pastor that I used to, real good friends with, used to say, you never seen at a funeral a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it, have you? Because you don't, that house that you have, you're not going to take it with you. That stuff in your house, none of it goes with you. That new car that you have, you don't take it with you. So we don't really own it. It's not really ours. It's just, it's on loan like us. It's just temporary. We have this car because we don't own it. 
We are just stewards of whatever we have. We have to understand that. When we understand that, it changes everything. So when it comes to giving things away, we're just stewarding, stewarding money in its proper way. That's what we're called to do. That's why we give to the church. That's why we support our family. That's why we give our money and resources to those in need. Because we're just stewards of what God has given to us, of what God owns. We have to think of it like that. We're just stewards of what God has made available to us. We're just managing what God has given. It's not ours. It's not ours. And so that totally changes our thinking when we realize, I don't own any of it. It all belongs to God. If God has given me this great job or, or this income that makes huge amount of money, it's all God's. God has provided that for you. He's provided that job. He's provided that employment. It's all his. It all belongs to him. Everything that you have belongs to him. You're not going to take anything with you. And when you understand that, and we don't buy in the lie that we are owners, because when we're owners, we want to hold on so tightly to it, don't we? And it's hard to give our full tithe. It's hard to give to those in need because it's mine. It's mine. But when I realize, no, it's not mine. It's God's. I'm the steward of what he's given to me. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, he's your master. He's your Lord. He owns everything, and everything that you have belongs to him. By the way, even unbelievers, everything out there, God owns everything. Everything in the world is his. Everything, everybody in the world is his. He, he belongs to everything, belongs to him. He owns it all. None of us are taking anything with us. But when we understand that, that I'm just stewarding now what God has given to me, when I understand that, it makes life so much easier. It gives us freedom, that it's not mine. So it's easy for me to live the way God wants me to live, right? Because we know from James 1 that God is the giver of all good and perfect gifts, that God gives it all. So he's the giver, he's the supplier, and we're just his vessel that he uses, the conduit of his grace, to give what he has given to us, to make sure that we're the stewards, that when he says, I want you to give, this is the money I've given you, this is the resources I've given, I want you to give part of it as, as a tithe, we can do that because it's not mine anyway. I'm just stewarding what God has given to me. I want you to help the needy. Yeah, I'm going I'm to supply for your needs. God's going to supply for your needs. But I'm giving you this, and I'm telling you how to proportion it out. I'm telling you how to give it out, how to use your money for my glory, right? Because it's all for God's glory, not for mine. And when we start living like that, it makes life so much easier. Don't buy the, into the empty promises of consumerism. The empty promise of consumerism will always bankrupt you spiritually and otherwise. Always will. When we buy into that, look what I have, look what I have, look what I have. I have visited a lot of people over the years uh, on their deathbed, and I've never had any of them talk about their possessions. Never had any of them worried about their possessions. They're always worried about their life right then and what's going to happen next. We don't take any of this stuff with us. The things that we think we work so hard to get that's not what life's about. Life's about God, that we're going to spend eternity. We need to realize our prize, our treasure, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? He's our treasure. He's eternity. He's where we're going to spend all of eternity. This life is for a very, very short time compared to eternity. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. One of our memory verses we shared a few weeks ago, beginning of July, it says this, What is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's the kind of life. Everything else is rubbish compared to Jesus. Not mean everything is rubbish, but compared to Jesus Christ, it is. There's nothing like him. Because Christ is the greatest gain that this world has ever known. 
Christ is the greatest gain that you and I could ever know. Christ is our treasure. And that's where we need to find our contentment. We need to find it in him. And when we do that, the Bible says that's when we have great gain. That's when you and I have this great gain that the Bible talks about. And that's when we can worship him, who he truly is, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's when we find true freedom in our life. That's where we find this freedom that we all want in our life. Contentment and freedom go hand in hand. That I'm free from this. That I don't own it. God owns it all, and it's God that's yours. So what do you want me to do with this, God? I don't have to make those hard decisions. God's going to lead me, but I have to obey him, what he tells me to do. And many times we don't want that because we're glued to that consumerism. Well, I want this stuff and this stuff, but God says, I want you to give you here, and I want you to give you here, and here's what you're going to use to pay your bills. But we need to follow God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, that's the first step. That's the first step, to have a relationship with him, that Jesus Christ died on the cross so you wouldn't have to spend one moment of eternity apart from him. That all of us in this room are sinners. And because of our sin, we're separated from a righteous, holy, just, perfect God, Jesus, right? All of us are. And because of that, our sins, we're going to spend an eternity away from God, apart from God, because of our sin. But God, in his grace and mercy, sent Jesus to this earth, and Jesus came to this earth, and then he went to the cross, and all of my sins and your sins, all those sins that separate us from God, were placed upon Jesus, and Jesus became your substitute. That's the grace of God. That he paid your sin debt upon that cross. That's God's grace. And now you and I have to respond to what Jesus did by placing our faith and trust in Jesus, by coming and saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's God. And that he died on the cross for my sins. And now today, I accept Jesus by faith that he died on the cross for my sins. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin. If you've never done that, if you've never had a time where you've accepted Jesus Christ, received him by faith, you need to do that today. Or if you have questions about that, please see me after the service because we have to get that right. That's the most important thing, that you have that relationship with Jesus, right? He can't be the Lord of your life if you, if you don't have a relationship with him. So you have to have that. For all of us who know Christ, he is our treasure, amen? And in Jesus, we find contentment. And in Jesus, we find freedom. And now we can truly live in Jesus. That's what he came to do. He says, I came to give you that contentment that's found only in Christ, our all-sufficient Savior, and that, that we have this freedom in Jesus, nothing like the world can offer. They can't offer that to us. That Jesus offers us freedom. He says, you're not going through this life all by yourself, but you now have me making the decisions. That Jesus is in the driver's seat. That everything I have is Jesus, and I can throw it all on him and say, Jesus, I can just sit back and allow you to lead my life. And that's what he wants. There's freedom in Christ. He came to give us freedom, not the bondage of this world and what the world has to offer, but freedom that we find in Jesus. With him leading us, him guiding us and directing us toward his righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Dear Lord, this world tempts us in so many ways. And one of the ways, Lord, it tempts us is in money and things and stuff and consumerism, Lord. Everyone in this room is tempted by that daily, daily. We want more stuff and not satisfied with what we have and not content with this and not content with that. And so, Lord, we, we continually are bombarded with ads and, and things when we look online and, and social media and everything. This person has that or neighbor has that. Hey, why can't I have this? 
We see all kinds of things. We're constantly bombarded. Lord, help us to get our contentment from Christ, to realize he is our all-sufficient Savior. Help us, Lord, to get into the Word of God and realize, Lord, we can't have two masters. We can't serve both God and money. We can only serve one. We serve God, he provides us freedom. We serve money and consumerism. It's bondage, more stuff, working harder to pay off all that stuff. But in Jesus Christ, we find freedom. Help us, Lord, to get into the Word of God and, and be aware of the promises and embrace the promises that you have for us. So we're going through our worries and our fears and our difficulty and our problems, Lord. We have the promises of God to embrace your truths, what you promised us. And Lord, you will not let, let us down in your promise. You will fulfill every one of your promises that you give us. That's your promise. That's what you guaranteed. And so, Lord, let us be people who, who grab hold of that, that you say that we find freedom in Jesus and, and we will be satisfied and content in Jesus. I pray that someone here today, Lord, maybe understand that maybe for the first time. And Lord, they've been living to what they could get out of this world, and maybe today they're finally understanding, I can actually have all that I'm seeking found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Lord, show us your power this morning. Show us, Lord, that our contentment can be found in you, and we can be truly, truly satisfied, completely happy and joyful in you, in you alone. That's where it comes. It's from you not from the things of this world. Convict us, Lord, if we're filled with uh, a greed for uh, consumerism, or for stuff, and for money, and draw us to yourself, that we may see the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. And may, Lord, we have the heart and mind that we live in that freedom with you, and you're guiding us, you're leading us, you're directing us. And we realize, Lord, that we don't own anything, that you own it all, it all belongs to you, and so we're now just being stewards of what you have given to us. And you guide us and lead us how you want you to use the money and resources you've given to us for your glory, to give our tithe, to help those in need, to pay our bills, or whatever you would have us to do with it, Lord. But guide us and lead us that we may be accomplishing your, your will, your purpose, and for your glory in our lives and not our own. Lord, when we talk about... Um, consumerism. We always talk about retirement and everything else, Lord. Lord, you know we have to put money away to save for, for uh, when we retire. But Lord, help us to live in balance to do that. Help us to realize as we're living on this earth, Lord, we still have to give our tithe. We still have to help those in need. That's why you provided for us. Let us not just be inward focused all about ourselves, but let us look at outward at other people. Let us be about on your mission to reach people for Jesus Christ, for your glory. Help us to always be on mission with all everything we have, that we be good stewards of what you have provided for us, for your glory, not our own. And Lord, may you be praised in, in our hearts and minds, and may we yield our hearts and minds to you, and may we live in the freedom that you've provided for us each and every day, and may we have that contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction that is only found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask all these things in that precious name of Jesus, amen.